You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximise their success and how HSBC is helping them. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the What You Don't Know series, where we focus on a different Canadian business in each episode to find out how they are growing and thriving in this unique environment. Join us as we uncover insights and lessons and examine how HSBC is partnering with these businesses to help them achieve their ambitions. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the What You Don't Know podcast. I'm your host today, Jennifer McMullen, a local director of business banking at HSBC Bank Canada. On this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Duncan Weatherstone, CEO of Smile CDR, a Canadian healthcare technology company with a unique open source platform that's making healthcare more accessible. Today, we're going to find out firsthand what you don't know about changing the way the world accesses healthcare. Duncan, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. So maybe you just want to give us a brief background of who you are and uh, how you came about to this company. Sure. My background is firmly rooted in both technology and healthcare. I have been an entrepreneur on and off since I was 18. Um, and I spent a bunch of my life recently as a consultant in province of Ontario in Canada, helping us create and deliver a broad-based electronic health record solution that encompassed primary care, acute care and hospital settings, patients, um, allied health professionals, and a variety of others. It was in the context of building those solutions and services that we decided to create Smile CDR, mostly on the back of perceived need that we had as consumers of these capabilities. We thought we could do a really good job of creating the capability for the dissemination of health information in a way that was responsive and aligned with modern practices that have been created as a consequence of the broad-based data flows associated with the internet. And it was on the back of those ideas that we started Smile CDR initially as an idea between a couple of us in 2013, 2014, and ultimately as a commercial venture in 2016. Over the last five years, we've been fortunate to grow from five people to nearly 300 today. So we're gonna dive in, we're gonna discover more about what we may not know about your company. And we're going to try and cover three unique areas. And a little bit more about your direct company. We're going to look at your international beginnings. And then we're going to see how you're going to navigate today's global market, especially given we're all living in a pandemic. So I think you and I were introduced at the beginning of 2019. It was before COVID was a common household name. Maybe give us a little what that was like being in the healthcare technology world. COVID gets announced the whole world shuts down. What does that look like for a healthcare technology company? Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing for us was that it didn't change all that much. Our staff stopped coming into the office and went home. But given the character of the work we do, it didn't break our business model very much. Another thing that was interesting about it was the essential non-event it was for healthcare IT. For those of us who'd been working in the industry, we've been preparing for any need for the ability to communicate information between systems for quite some time now. And so they didn't require us to rethink very much in the way that we tackle the overall solution. Obviously, there are point solutions that need to get created for things like the availability of immunization records, the interactions that happen at at the points of immunization, because recording those events is not necessarily trivial, and it certainly hasn't proven to be a simple task internationally. 
But once information is recorded, the ability to exchange that information, store that information, and then make it usable for a variety of purposes has remained you know, consistent. And it doesn't matter whether you're getting an immunization, whether you've had a lab, whether you're taking medications, whether there's a diagnostic imaging report, whether you had an encounter with, with a hospital, all of these bits of information need to get aggregated and then made available to those people that need them. And that's really what we were trying to build. So when COVID started, it was you know, another data point, but not a transformative perspective on the way healthcare gets delivered. So COVID hit, I imagine, you know, you guys have been preparing for an online healthcare information sharing system. Was there a point that you and your management team all looked at each other and be like, this is it. This is our moment. The regular world is going to understand what we were saying. While the rest of us were all shutting down and getting worried, were you going, this is our opportunity. This is our big break to explain why we need to take everything virtual and share this information in an open source way. So I think it was that kind of a moment for the people who are involved in telemedicine and remote monitoring and remote remote patient care, because for them, they definitely have been preparing as an industry for the ability to support people from home in, in dire circumstances for some time. For those of us who are sharing the information, I think this was more of a elaboration and justification for our position, but it wasn't a sea change because independent of a broad scale epidemic or a public health event, the ongoing requirement that your health information travel with you and be usable by you has been sort of a consistent story for the past hundred years. I mean, we've gotten better at it from the days when it was paper what our platform is and what, where the community is going is towards a very consistent strategy for the sharing of data in the same way that the internet broke down all of the networking complexities that existed in the 80s and the 70s. The approach that we're taking with health data now is enabling us to provide the whole clinical community, whether you're a payer or a provider, whether you're a patient, whether you're a researcher or a pharma company or whatever it happens to be, with a mechanism to share that information consistently and with the expectation that the receiving party will understand how to interpret what you're telling them in a way that is meaningful to them. And that is a huge change. You'd, you'd have thought perhaps that we would have solved this problem previously, but it hasn't been solved. And we are now, you know, in the last three or four years, really starting to see the benefit of these standards and technology decisions that have been made. So really for us, the big change in the past year, rather than being COVID, has been this adoption and this broad understanding of the value of this protocol and approach by CMS and ONC in the US. It's so interesting. A smile, you have this platform. Who's buying this? Who is your customer? Who are you marketing to? It's obviously not to me. It's not to my family doctor. Who are you selling this to? It is actually a very broad-based solution that has use in every aspect of healthcare. Because we're a software platform for healthcare, one of the characteristics that's interesting about health data is that it's often in just text format. So if you think about the um, notes you get from your doctor on discharge from a hospital, or if you see what's been written down, you'll see that they're very comprehensive and well thought out, but they really are in paragraph form and they're written in prose. This presents a challenge to IT interactions because computers like to have discrete information and be able to act on it. And so the neat thing about where we are now is we're starting to create capabilities to take that information and break it down into discrete communicable forms for IT while retaining the information content for clinicians. And so with that in mind, we're able to open up a broad stream of information for researchers and for others, say pharma and the ability to develop new meds and new immunizations. And it's going to get broadly adopted there as its growth is quite significant. Our platform is useful for governments who are providing care or participating in care for exactly the same reasons we've just discussed. And so when we talk about our client base, we don't have 
a single group that we're focused on. Really what we're trying to do is enable this transformation in how information is used in healthcare and then make it available to the whole community. That also kind of underpins our strategy of open source versus commercial. And this is a conscious decision. When we started our platform, we realized that this open standard called Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources is quite a jumble of words. It's called FIRE for short. This new standard called FIRE would provide everybody with a common mechanism, just like HTML did for the web, for communicating information amongst each other. So suddenly we have a means by which it's very easy to define to all those members I just talked about what information is available to them and how they can get it and how they can create a browser, if you want to think of it that way, that knows how to go and interact with it. And so the upshot, of course, is that as a goal, you want to make that available to everyone. I mean, independent of being a business that wants to make money, we're all patients. My family are all patients. Your family are all patients. We want them to get the right care. And so we have an open source strategy, which is about making that open standard available to everybody. We had a need at the time we did this to make a platform that was able to support millions of patients and millions of, of requests and tens of thousands of doctors interacting with this information in meaningful ways. And so our platform is a wrapper around that standard, built on top of that standard to enable people to really get that information and make use of it. You know, much the same way of the idea of your browser and your HTTP are free. You wouldn't expect to pay for that. But all the services that you get on top of it, there are businesses who are making money, whether that's Twitter or whether that's Amazon, there's a commercial opportunity there to deliver value over top of the open standard. All of us should be able to participate in our health data. Everybody should have access to it. And we should facilitate it and make it part of the underlying infrastructure of life. It shouldn't be, you know, health information is somehow different from commercial information. It should be that your health information is your health information. It's always available. Where the commercial value arises is our ability to really make that work in very, very high demand environments with high velocity transactions and all of those things which make it commercially useful in clinical practices and other places. And, and really, that's been the focus of our business differentiation. At the heart of what we do, we have a slogan called Better Global Health, and we firmly believe that we're able to deliver better global health through our practices. And that, that's really our goal. Okay, so I love that slogan. Say it again to me. It's better global health. Better global health. So global. So currently you're in 15 countries. Maybe give us a little idea of where those are and then where you want to be. Where are you projecting to be in three to five years and what countries are top priority for you? Yeah, this is an area that's near and dear to my heart. So part of our business model is to build commercially viable solutions in developed nations that you know means I can hire staff at rates that are relevant in Toronto or New York or wherever it happens to be, but that we take the benefits of what we're discovering and building and make them available globally to communities that have different economics, right? And what we think the value prop here is a better connected globe will be able to support better health information for all of us. And that better health information for all of us leads to richer research, leads to faster cures, leads to more innovative engagement, leads to solutions in environments that are challenging today, but shouldn't be. And with that in mind, and with the type of platform we have, we're partnered with telcos who've been instrumental in our engagement in this space in low and middle income countries to figure out how we create commercially viable opportunities in those ecosystems at rates which are meaningful to them. So in the developing nations, the idea is that they can take advantage of the advances in the way we communicate health information to be able to provide distributed access to the data 
um, and local centralized access to the treatment. And so if you picture how that might work, you can imagine that in a country where there are very consolidated areas of care, but distributed populations, where there was access to telephones, and this is one of my favorite pieces of information, even in the least supported environments, up to 75% of the population have access to a smartphone through um, either their own possession or through somebody in the community who's got one, which means that we can really, when I talk about distributed care, get into the most distributed marginalized communities in ways that are effective for the value of care that we're hoping to bring. And so you can imagine you've got a bunch of experts in a central area who have the ability to provide decision support and we can roll out the ability to make really simple decisions like, should I go to the hospital into rural communities that for them would mean a five-hour journey in both directions to get the care they want? And so the ability to provide even simple assessments like that can greatly improve their access to care and their quality of care they get. And so our vision on better global health is, first of all, make all of our open source available to everybody, provide instructions on how to use it and help people build tools for free where that's the imperative. And in those areas where there's the wherewithal to start nascent businesses at sort of centralized levels to work with them and provide our platform at vastly reduced cost from what we pay in the West so that they have pride of ownership and the ability to move forward and keep those economies scaled locally so that you can build out you know, a business vision there. And by doing this, by giving away free open source software, by making right priced commercial software, and then by really driving innovation in the developed world to find ways to maximize the benefit of health information, we really think that that is a recipe for participation in a much more broad-based visualization of how global health might be moving forward. I feel like since we started talking, you know, we started talking about healthcare, you know, IT, that kind of cold kind of, and I feel in this conversation now we're at this like warm underside of smile where it's like, no, we really just want to have better healthcare. And when you start talking about like developing markets and I'm going to put this and you can respond back to me. Would you say you're a social enterprise? I kind of feel like now as we're getting down this, there's some real greater good that's out there. And like, that's what's driving some of the commercial success that you're having. So I think that's true largely for healthcare. I think if you were to say, is healthcare a social enterprise? We are. Despite the obvious commercial opportunity, the community is driven by care and it's in the work, right? So when I talk to doctors, there's very few doctors who I deal with who haven't contributed to social good in developing nations. As a community, doctors are incredibly generous with their time and try to do their best to help out. And as a community, nurses are incredibly generous with their time. For those of us who work in the industry, it's incumbent on us to try and participate in kind and where we can do the right thing as well. I think it's a whole trajectory of healthcare. I love that. There we are. Things I don't know. You know, once you get into the industry, you know, stuff that we don't know on the outside. Now I'm going to bring this back to you. You and I know each other. And I just want to bring it back to February 2019. Remind me how we got introduced and why you decided to work with HSBC. You know, we're in Canada. There's a lot of domestic options. Why did we rise to the top is to be a partner with you in this growth internationally? When we first met you, it was as a consequence of working with the government of Canada for international affairs and trying to figure out how we're going to be more globally effective. And the 
individual who'd been working with us from the government recommended we talk to you. And so this was on the back of our discussion about how we want to be in so many different places and the value prop of having an organization that is in those same places with us. And on the back of that, we had an introduction. And after our first conversation, I realized that not only we aligned from a global dispersion perspective, but we were aligned from the, the view of opportunity and the ability to change things. And so the early conversations we had really gave me confidence in HSBC's participation, both as a business partner and as a vision partner. And that was really what, what sort of sealed the deal. It's good to hear because that's what, you know, we all work towards. And that's what, one of the main reasons we do what we do. Despite everyone thinks bankers do care. We are here. We are here to help the entrepreneur and your growth and your success is honestly, it's not my hard work, but I feel just as excited as you do. In that front, you guys really did help out, right? So at the time we started engaging with you, you know, we're, we're a Canadian company um, and it's a small market. And as a consequence, Canadians are skeptical of anything made in Canada until the broader market has adopted it. You really do have to go out to the globe first demonstrate that you're effective, then come back to Canada and convince Canadians that the success puts you in the right ranks to be able to be a participant in their community. Canadians are very practical. So with that in mind, when we came back to Canada, we didn't have the type of um, support from Canadian business that you'd expect for a company that was in the position we were in. Whereas you guys immediately saw through that and gave us the opportunity to participate in banking services that we sorely needed at that point in time for our growth. And really on the back of the support you gave us, we were able to fuel the next five months of how do we take the fact that we're scaling up so rapidly. And in that time frame from when we started, we grew from 30 to 300 people. And you can't do that without a bank supporting you. And so you guys were really instrumental in our ability to take that step and move it forward the way we want to do. I agree. And I work with business banking. So a lot of times, you know, I'm in that growth period. And maybe just on that, give us your perspective as being a CEO of, you know, let's say an under $5 million company, over $10 million. What has changed in your job? What are you worried about now that you weren't worried about? And how does that kind of flip-flop? Because I've seen some of those changes. So I would have to say that they're almost two different jobs. Yeah, exactly. The things I had to do as a bootstrapped entrepreneur building a business with no money are very different from where I am today. Right. And so while I was an under $5 million company trying to figure out how we were going to grow, you know, it was largely on the back of our effort, right? I had to be our architect being sort of developer and our team was sort of very tightly knit and we were coming up with ideas on how we could sell. And now that we're at 300 people, my technical acumen is irrelevant. You feel good sometimes I can pat myself on the back that I understood what somebody said to me, but really... I'm sure my team would rather that I had no idea what they were saying because it's probably less helpful than I think. The really valuable piece that you get to an organization of our size, and I suspect looking forward, it's the ability to understand the relationships that you have and the value of those relationships and the ability to assess opportunity and the value of opportunity and the ability to help your leadership team achieve their visions. So the change in, in focus has to be to walk away from your technical acumen, not maybe entirely, but... Um, as much as you can walk away from your technical history, whatever your specialty history is, when you step into the role of CEO of a growing larger organization, you have to be able to embrace the value of your team. You have to be able to embrace the support for the decisions being made by those around you. You have to be able to embrace the community that you're interacting with. And you have to be able to inspire everybody around you to achieve the best that they can. And obviously, that's a huge transition. And if you think about our broader vision, the idea that we're going to try and change a substantial way of how people think about health information and its use in the delivery of care, we have to be inspirational. We can't afford to be purely tactical. Because if all I'm trying to show you is here's a better widget, you won't see that this better widget will lead you to empowering people in 
a small part of you know sub-Saharan Africa to get better care. I have to explain, our goal is to get there, and here's why this is a step on the way in that direction. And in my mind, that really is the transition. In, in the early stages, I have to be able to sort of build stuff and show that we can do stuff. In the later stages, I have to be able to explain why it is that our team's vision and, and the community that we have are so dedicated to this transition, and then help other people either rationalize and refine that vision or help other people see and join that vision. And that really is the goal I have these days. Yeah, it's like you've said. So you've kind of hit upon bootstrapping entrepreneur, doing everything. Now you're in this growing company that's hitting international markets and very successful. So where can HSBC help you and walk us through the next three years or the next big goal? What's really important is that we're able to communicate the transformational nature of the business we're in, right? I think the way I've explained it to others is there was a time before the internet and after the internet. And in the time before the internet, all of our expected engagements were in person, whether that was at a teller, at a store, going for dinner with your friends, reading articles, it's all tactile and in person. And after the internet, although we still have all of those things from before the internet, we have a whole suite of activities that can occur in the middle of a pandemic. So we don't actually lose shopping and we don't lose contact with our business associates and we are able to interact with each other. None of us would think of banking in the same light as we did in the late 80s or the mid 70s. Obviously, you do want to have a look. We have a great relationship with you and we met in person and everything else. We do have these personal relationships. But the point is, there's been this huge sea shift in the way that it drives business. Although, um, you know, no industry is completely immune. Healthcare has largely been immune to that change. The substantive character of healthcare is human, right? And that is a ongoing and for the foreseeable future character of the of the business. And consequently, it wasn't amenable to removing tellers or remote interactions. It's taken a lot for us to get to a state where the information that a provider could get about you could be sufficient without an in-person interaction. And we're still not there yet, but at least on the horizon is that ability where the systems that monitor you, where the availability of real-time information gives them sufficient data that they can start doing some of their work without you in the room, where the technologies that they're using aren't so intrusive and distracting that it is causing burnout. Like all of these constraints that have caused healthcare to stay behind the rest of the world when it comes to the use of information have barriers that need to be broken down. And part of our vision when I say our, I mean the industry who are proceeding down the path that we happen to be sharing with them um, is this vision of a post-internet world for healthcare, where all the data a clinician needs about you is available to them immediately in meaningful ways. The consequence of this data isolation is that a lot of clinicians are still having to work in conditions that could be described as our artisanal, right? So these are very, very smart, well-intentioned people with a great deal of education who are being asked to integrate more and more and more information and not necessarily being given the tools to do so. I think one of the walls we have to break down is we have to get to the point where we're supporting these very talented people with information that is um, able to live up to their very strenuous demands and expectations and then provide meaningful value to them, not sort of dollar store quick hits, but really deep transformative value. And I think the last piece of this that's really important is the competitive aspect of this. There is no internet company. The internet is a collective event. We can't have the 
internet of healthcare company, we have to have the internet of healthcare and a bunch of companies who are facilitating it. So our vision involves a broad competitive landscape of people delivering value. And we want to be a key player in that. We have a vision for ourselves that we hope will improve things, but we want others to be sharing that vision and competitive and really sort of driving innovation and that whole frost that makes everything change. And so, so really that's the character of, of you know, what we think is different about what we're doing. Collaboration. Collaboration and competition together. Yeah, the, the perfect recipe in between that, right? Okay, I'm going to ask you one question that's probably off topic or on topic. You have 300 employees now. I'm going to say they're probably mostly virtual. Like, what do you do to bring your culture together? You know, you've got 300 people, you're all working on this very transformational vision of the future. Like, what brings your culture as a company together? And what drives that? So the first thing is, we've been very careful in who we hired. We have the most amazing team. I try to tell them often enough. Hopefully someone sees us and hears it from some other angle, but I feel like I'm privileged and honored to work with such a spectacular, thoughtful, caring group. If you go to our website, you'll find that right at the start of the pandemic, while we could still get together, we had all gone together in a room and sort of put down our corporate philosophy. And if you look at where our team was in terms of the ability to care, deliver value, support, it is really remarkable. So we started off with a team who were culturally aligned, really generous individuals. And you know, what's happened over the pandemic is we've had to hire a substantially large number of people. Like you can picture how that was like growing 10 times your size in a couple of years. But I think the base values that drive what we're doing have pervaded and were maybe influential in types of people we hired. What I find is that no matter who I talk to in the company, they all share our vision. They, they want to change the world. They want to deliver healthcare. They want to make a place where people are able to stay healthy longer, to have you know more responsive interactions with their clinicians, whatever it happens to be. So it's from that perspective, it's been very easy to sustain the culture. Is your workforce diversified across countries? It, like, is that something in the future? Grabbing the great labor force of the world. Absolutely. This is one of the things I love, actually. So for, from my perspective, I think the idea that you can grow up, work in an interesting firm, and travel the world is an essential part of how the future ought to be. Like, you know, when I was a kid, working meant going into a place and being bound to that place and, you know, taking a vacation and being away from it. I love the idea. Our team are, are pretty diverse. We've got people in India, the Philippines, the US, Canada, South America, Europe. We're pretty broadly distributed. And so consequently, being employed does not mean being forced into boundaries. It means you can you can keep your vision, you can go and see the world, you can do the things you want to do. And I think one of the things I love about the new economy, the new way of doing things is that we can keep encouraging people to do that. So I think there's huge opportunities for all companies out there to find ways to expand the boundaries and vision of their staff while retaining their services and abilities. I love this opportunity. You know, coming out, beginning my career, that sounded like do your job anywhere in the world. No, you, that's impossible. Uh, you know, in 20 years now, we're looking at it. And like you said, it's, it's your people are in your company are already doing it. It's amazing. Well, so there's an example of the transformation the internet brings. Like this is entirely on the back of the internet, right? Imagine that for health. And that's the part which I, I want really people to buy into. Imagine if you can do that transformation that the internet did for everything else for healthcare. You pick the aspect of the character of being well for 120 years. And that's the goal, right? Imagine living 120 years of perfect health. That would be when we've succeeded. I do plan to be around for that. So Duncan, you mentioned you're out of Toronto. You currently bank with HSBC Bank Canada. Where else do you bank with us? And where else do you see opening bank accounts around the world, perhaps? Or where else can you see us growing with you? 
Yeah. So this is a really important part of our business plan. You know, as we said earlier on, goal for Smile is to deliver global care. In order to do that, you actually have to have a footprint in the countries you're working in. You can't possibly engage in community activity remote. Well, you probably could, but it's very challenging. Goal would be to have a footprint in the communities that you're working in. And HSBC is, is well-established in all the places we intend to go. You know, we're working in Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand, South America, Europe. We're starting to do a bit of work in Africa. Asia is a market we're, we're sort of pursuing. And you can imagine that in order to be able to resolve the differences and the distinctions in the way that finances are handled in each of those communities, we need a player who's local there. And so HSBC is 100% our go-to for that approach. And, and today, like I said, we're in Canada, the U.S and we're opening some direct offices in Europe. But beyond that, we have staff who are working in India. We have staff in the Philippines. For now, we're funding that through agency pathways. But at some point, we're going to be opening offices there as well. So HSBC is 100% our supporter and our plan for how do we deal with that. I think we've covered a lot of good points. I think we've figured out what's inspired you and your team and how we got here. Is there anything that we don't know about Smile CDR? Or, like you said, you had a big investor this year. We will see you on the stock market at some point. Is there something you want to share with everyone listening to look out for in the next in the headlines? All right. So we'll pat ourselves a little bit on the back here. We were voted in the Fast 50 for growing companies. So uh, about big plans. We think that you know part of having big goals is the need to deliver big things. We think we can do that again. So our, our goal is ultimately to participate and help deliver on healthcare globally. And you know we're just a small Toronto firm who's taking off. So yeah. So I want to thank you for joining us, sharing a lot about your company. Like I said earlier on, I feel like we started with IT, cold, you know, you think computer, data entry, all that sort of stuff into really what your underlying vision for the future of healthcare. And I think everyone can appreciate the collaboration you're looking to do to change that for everyone, paying or not. And this open source platform is it's amazing, right? Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. This has been a special broadcast of What You Don't Know, a podcast series where we sit down with exciting and dynamic Canadian businesses to understand their unique journey and how HSBC is helping them along the way. To find out more about anything you heard today, visit business.hsbc.ca. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.